on Abbey Road, you know, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. And I think there is like something where if you do things for the right reasons, um, do the right things for the right reasons, good things are bound to happen. Welcome to Improv is No Joke podcast, where it's all about becoming a more effective communicator by embracing the principles of improvisation. I'm your host, Peter Margaritas, the self-proclaimed chief edutainment officer of my business, The Accidental Accountant. My goal is to provide you with thought-provoking interviews with business leaders so you can become an effective improviser, which will lead to building stronger relationships with clients, customers, colleagues, and even your family. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode 28 of Improv is No Joke podcast. Thank you very much for downloading this episode. Today's guest is Jamie Richardson, who is the VP of Government and Shareholder Relations at White Castle Systems, Inc., and a frequent contributor on Fox Business News. Our discussion focuses on the power of networking. Many people just don't like to network, and I blame their mothers. That's right, your mother is preventing you from networking because your mother always said, don't talk to strangers. Well, there are no strangers in a business environment. There are future opportunities, and Jamie and I discuss different approaches to networking. The one approach that Jamie discusses is the friendship approach. In networking situations, he views it as making friends, which takes away the corporate connotations and allows us to become better at connecting with someone. The friendship approach requires you to be a good listener, which is one of the principles of improvisation. As you are listening to our conversation, see how many references there are to the principles of improvisation, and they are respect, support, trust, listen, focus, adapt, along with yes and. One of my goals with this podcast is that it'll help you begin to make changes in your work and personal lives so you can better connect with others and create meaningful business relationships. Many people have said it takes 21 days to start a habit, but a lifetime to keep that pattern. That's why I created the Yes And Challenge, to help keep these principles in front of you so you can build up your improvisational muscle. To sign up, please go to petermargaritas.com and scroll down to the Yes And Challenge call to action and click to register to begin building the productive habit of Yes And and the principles of improvisation. And remember to share your experiences on Twitter using the hashtag YesAndChallenge. If you're unaware of what the Yes And Challenge is all about, I discuss this in detail in episode zero. So go back and take a listen. And remember, you can subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on Google Play. Now, Christmas is a little more than a week away, and if you're looking for a perfect gift for your team, I recommend purchasing my book, Improv is No Joke, Using Improvisation to Create Positive Results in Leadership and in Life. It's available in paperback and on Kindle at Amazon.com and at BarnesandNoble.com. If you'd like to purchase more than five paperback books, please email me for volume discounts by December 16th at peter at petermargaritas.com. With that said, let's get to the interview with Jamie Richardson. Hey, I've got Jamie Richardson with me this morning. Uh, he is the uh, Vice President of Government and Shareholder Relations at White Castle System, comma, 
Inc. And I've known Jamie for a while, and he's an extremely busy individual. He called me yesterday. He was in the state of Kentucky on a tour. Uh, he's also the chairman of the Ohio Restaurant Association and just an all-around great guy. And, and first, I want to thank you for joining me this morning uh, on my podcast. Hey, Pete. It's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. So what have you been up to these days? I know you're a busy guy just from what I said. You also have a, a wonderful family with, with five children. And I think your oldest one is about almost a little bit older than my son, and he's 16. That's right. Yeah, they're getting older every day. <laughs> well, yes. Yes, they are. And people say I have an amazing sense for the obvious. Captain, there is. Captain Obvious. And your youngest is how old? Uh, he is seven. He is seven. And then we have uh, 14, 12, and soon to be 10 uh, in between. So uh, it's a great crew. Uh, Brendan, Chloe, Mary Grace, Maggie, and Finn. Wow. I understand why you're on the road a lot, because there's probably a lot more work at home. Than <laughs> yeah, when you can... yeah, she's the, she's the one with the conductor stick. She keeps us uh, heading in the right direction. And she's a wonderful woman. She is. I've met her a number of times, and you got a great wife. So what are you up to these days? What's going on in, in Jamie world? Well, you know, here in, in White Castle land, uh, we're always busy. You know, the castle never closes. We're open 24-7. And uh, it's been, we're having a blast. We're, we're really having a lot of fun, uh, hopefully making memorable moments every day for our customers, feeding the souls of Craver generations everywhere. But if you can believe it, uh, this is our 95th birthday year. So it was 95 wow. years ago that the epicenter of all cravings uh, was launched. And uh, we're, we're going better and bigger and having more fun than ever. So we're, we're keeping real busy and, and just having a blast. 95 years old. Wow, that's awesome. So I imagine that within the next well five years from now, you're going to have one heck of a 100th anniversary. Oh, yeah. This whole year has been a dress rehearsal for the 100th birthday party. So, uh, you know, we get up early. We stay up late. Uh, but uh, but we're selling a lot of hamburgers in between. So, uh yeah, no, it's been a really, really fun year. And, you know, to be a, a family-owned business after all these years is is really unique these days. So we just transitioned from the third generation of family leadership to the fourth generation of family leadership. And that's just been really, really incredibly uh, just invigorating and good. And we're really, really grateful for all that the previous generations have done to bring us to this point in time. And now it's kind of up to the fourth generation to see what's next and where we take it from here. And running a family business is very unique compared to running uh, any other type of business. I, I think so. And I think unique in a lot of ways that are very distinctive, because if you look around, a lot of the, the businesses that are known for treating their team members well, for taking a longer view, tend to be family businesses. And, and candidly, uh, we believe that's a better business model because it gives us the freedom and flexibility to make good decisions for the long haul, to not get caught up in what I would call the sudden tug in an emergency, but rather just really kind of taking the perspective of, uh, you know, not only how's this going to impact us next week or next month, what's this look like five years from now if we make a good decision today? So we have that chance to pay it forward for, for the duration. We think that's really distinctive in a world that's candidly become kind of alphabet soup sometimes in terms of this merger or that transaction or this takeover. And, and we feel it gives us uh, an anchor and, and, uh, we call it the base of all metaphysics here in Castle Land. Well, I, I would have to, because I've talked to other um, individuals who've been part of family-owned businesses, 
And it sounds like that your family business, the White Castle business, is not dysfunctional at all compared to some other family businesses that I've talked to and, and have fallen apart through that. And, and I know at one time, I think it's been two years ago, weren't you traveling around the country speaking about on family businesses to family business uh, uh, conferences and things like that? Yeah, good memory. Um, we're part of a really uh, great group called Family Enterprise USA. And so I was doing some volunteer work with them as, as a member of their board and actually did uh, get to about uh, 32 different uh, family business centers around the country and was able to share more about our perspective on family businesses, White Castle, and especially why it's important from an advocacy point of view for family businesses to share their story with uh, you know, our thought leaders and lawmakers, whether that's at the state level or the federal level, just to make sure that when they're uh, putting policy in place, they're really taking into consideration the impact it might have on family business. And you, that is primarily your role right now is the advocacy side of White Castle's business. Yeah, I'm really fortunate. So um, I get to share uh, the the story of White Castle with uh, all kinds of different uh, friends. And and our, our focus is really on making friends wherever we go. So Part of my responsibilities include our government relations, as well as our shareholder relations, then our public relations, and then actually our philanthropy as well. So, and notice how I got yes and in there, because you know what? Improv is no joke. I read that somewhere. <laughs> I, I, I know you did. You were one of the first persons that, uh, that got the preview copy and gave me a wonderful review on it. Thank you very much. But yes, and that was a nice plug. <laughs> well, it's, it's a good way to approach it. I think uh, if I look at our family business and what's happened over the decades. Candidly, the philosophy you talk about in the book has been the philosophy for how we built the business in terms of seeing not things as a trade-off, but how can we get to a situation where we're all better off? That's what we do in our communities every day. You know, we have nearly 400 restaurants in 400 different neighborhoods, and that's where we live, where we work, and where we raise our families. And the heart and soul of it to us is how can we provide more jobs? How can we provide more employment and more opportunity for these individuals who otherwise might not have that chance for a path to prosperity? So for us, it's about uh, how do we make a difference every day, not just in serving up hot and tasty food, 100% beef steam grilled on a bed of onions with one bakery fresh bun and a perfect pickle. But uh, in addition to that, how can we nourish the souls in a way that's distinctive? And we think that's part of what that makes us a little bit different. And your burgers are not flipped at all on the griddle. You are a connoisseur. We get get you into a castle for National Hamburger Month next May. But oh. that is correct. Yeah. Five holes to allow that melding of flavors. You got it. You're making me hungry, man. Uh, I, I think after this interview, since I live in Westerville and there is a castle here in Westerville, I think I know where I'm going for lunch today. Tell Kathy Gunderson, the general manager there, we said hello. She's making it happen. Uh, that's awesome. And, and I know that with this government and the advocacy piece, you've been able to do some pretty cool things. Uh, I think you told me a couple of years ago that Castle went to the Capitol. Yeah, that's right. We actually had castles at the Capitol where uh, this is actually, I guess, wow, it goes by quick. It was five years ago. We celebrated our 90th birthday and actually set up grills. And uh, and uh, I know there's been a beer summit, but we had a beef summit. And we brought uh, members of both parties together to share some white castles. And uh, everyone raved about it. It was a lot of fun. And uh, we had a lot of hungry staffers lining the hallways of uh, the Capitol building that day and many members of Congress. And uh, so it was really, really a fun, memorable moment. And uh, yeah, good times. So did, they, did, did, the, did the lawmakers and staffers come out uh, to the lawn of the Capitol and were they served there? Or did you have to take them into the Capitol? And uh, by doing that, going into the 
did, did it have to go through the metal detectors and the screeners and the scanners? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, we were preparing the food just outside the Capitol Dome, and uh, it, it was like it looked like something at Roswell, man. We had tents, we were sheltered, we had everything going on, and uh, everything was great. The morning of, there had been so much preparation, so much good work. I mean, we would work with the Department of Homeland Security, the Capitol Hill Police, the architect of the Capitol, the sergeant at arms. Anyone you can think of, we had had the chance to meet with them, talk through this, and we had measured twice and cut once. Everything was perfect until we realized that uh, security was asking us if they would need to hand one to each single burger. <laughs> thankfully, uh, <laughs> thankfully, to get them inside to the Capitol Dome, thankfully, someone had the foresight to bring Crave Crate packages with us that hold 100, and we breathe a collective sigh of relief when that Crave crate very narrowly just cleared the bar and fit through the metal detector on the conveyor. So we were taking in a hundred at a time uh, at a time versus one at a time. So that's just, there's yes. And thinking for you right there, my friend, we didn't give up and we, we fed the masses and it was a beautiful day. So about how many uh, of those tasty burgers did you uh, feed our, our capital with? Uh, about 5,850 at last count, uh, you know, uh, according to the records. There might have been, you know, it's government accounting, so it might have been off a little bit. But uh, uh, it was a great time and a, and a unifying day for everybody who had the chance to take part. And I do believe one of our, at the time, uh, members of the House was a big, huge fan and still is of the castle. That's exactly right. In fact, uh uh, the gentleman uh, that we honored that day is we inducted into the Cravers Hall of Fame, uh, the then Speaker of the House, uh, John Boehner, who grew up uh, just outside of uh, Redding, uh, uh, Ohio, in the Cincinnati area. And uh, he loved his castles as a boy and loves them still today. His favorite is the double cheeseburger. But uh, we inducted the Speaker into uh, the Hall of Fame, and uh, he told great stories about having his newspaper route as a kid, and he'd stop on his bike and uh, make it to the castle now and then. So good times. Wow. So uh, how many are in the Hall of Fame? Well, uh, I'm glad you asked me that, Pete, because uh, many are called and few are chosen. So in fact, <laughs> we've done some pretty scientific research. And just for anyone who's listening, it is easier to get into Harvard than it is the Cravers Hall of Fame. Uh, less than 1% of those nominated actually get inducted into the Hall of Fame. And uh, we're at about 120 members in the Cravers Hall of Fame. And we just inducted our most recent class. Notably, in addition to Speaker Boehner, another notable nominee who was actually uh, inducted is the only person in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame who's in the White Castle Cravers Hall of Fame, a gentleman by the name of Alice Cooper. Ah, yeah. And so uh, he's a great fan of the brand. So is, is Alice originally from Michigan? He is. He grew up in Detroit, or as we say here, Detroit. Detroit. Paris in the Midwest. That's right. But of course it's Detroit. But what else would it be, my friend? Maybe it is a beret. I do not know. I know that because I, I, know, I know my friend, Mr. Richardson, has uh, uh, Michigan ties. That's, that is true. Yeah, I, I've done a border crossing before. So I was born and raised in the state uh, north of Ohio, but I got here as quick as I could. <laughs> yeah, and I think, did, did you go to Michigan State? I did not. I have uh, two younger sisters who attended there, which uh, converted me to be a Michigan State fan early in life. So I, uh, I attended Siena Heights University 
in, uh, in Michigan. Yeah. I, as soon as, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I went, no, no, he went to Siena Heights. And I'm trying to figure out the Michigan State because just for my audience to know that Jamie's actually a former student of mine. He was in, uh, in the NBA program at the Ohio Dominican University in Columbus, and he was in my MBA accounting class, and he's the only student I've ever taught that was able to get an F within the first five <laughs> seconds of walking into my class. You want to explain how you got an F there, my friend? Well, uh, <laughs> a metaphorically F. You know, before the first class, there's always that uh, pre-meeting to get the uh, first assignment for week one. So in that pre-meeting, uh, Professor Margaritas mentioned, hey, if my Kentucky Wildcats make it to the finals on Monday night, which they will, and if they're in that NCAA championship game, which they will be, we will probably not have class. <laughs> and uh, in the course of that weekend in that specific year, uh, it turned out they came up against the mighty Michigan State Spartans. And I was so uh, overjoyous about this victory and remembering that Professor Margaritas had indicated his Wildcat uh, fanaticism. I thought, well, he seems to have a good sense of humor. Uh, I thought I'd wear my Michigan State jersey to class, and uh, he wasn't smiling. In fact, he looked, shook his head, and said, you can leave now. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was something along those lines, because, because the thing, you had a little drama there, because everybody was in the class, and I was just about to close the door, and you came walking through. <laughs> that was not intentional. <laughs> <laughs> and I just looked at you, and I went, wow, that's the quickest F I've ever given anybody. Why don't you leave now? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That, I was using my coping mechanisms. I repressed the memory of the F, you know, but now that you say that, it, it does come back to me. It's kind of hauntingly familiar. And that was a very bold move, my friend. But as we say in improv, you, you kind of assessed the situation and took a risk. And uh, it motivated me to work harder because I knew if it was anything that was subjective, I was gone. I was toast. <laughs> I really had to nail it. I couldn't be somewhere in between. There's a precision to accounting in it. It uh, inspired me to be precise. Uh, I, I tell that story uh, to, to so many people, and so it goes to it goes to the thing of the improv, but also goes to the thing of of developing a network. I mean, to get to where you are and what you've done over the years, you've called on me a couple of times to say, "Hey, do you know somebody? Can you help me here?" And vice versa. Um, how have you been able to establish and grow such a, a very strong network over the years? I just think uh, a big part of that is just making friendships wherever you go and really risking the vulnerability of putting yourself in situations where you might not know as many people, you know, um, giving yourself the chance and permission to go places where you think you might meet those you want to spend more time with or learn about uh, from an organizational point of view. Uh, I'm a member of our downtown Kiwanis uh, club in Columbus and I love it, you know, great friends and an incredibly, uh, great group that does so much for our community and, and neighborhoods. Along the way, I've made friendships that last a lifetime. And I think I've found that uh, having the chance to volunteer and to serve on different charity boards has been another great opportunity to just meet incredible people who are dedicated, have similar values and care about our community and want to make a difference, but also really opens you up to a great uh, introduction to a more diverse network of friends because from different industries, from different backgrounds, from different worldviews and perspectives. And, uh, to me, the greatest part of networking, which is one of those words that kind of can have loaded meanings, to me, it's about making friendships. And, and part of that friendship is being a good listener and really getting to know somebody and appreciate who they are, where they're coming from, 
And then I, I think it does start to unlock a lot of doors in terms of what you have in common um, and gives you permission to maintain those friendships. And, you know, when you have that uh, and you're able to listen, when you're actually really listening and not thinking about what you're going to say next, you hear things that you're able to remember. So the next time you see that person, you can circle back and say, hey, how'd that go when you went on your trip to South America? Or how'd it go when you made that border crossing into Michigan? Did they really check your ID when you came back into Ohio? Whatever it may be. But I think there's fun in that. And I, I just have discovered so many incredible people that we have uh, wherever you're at, wherever you go. And I'm sure people from all over will be listening to this. And I just think it's uh, we're given the chance to be apostles of hope. You know, we should just go for it and see what happens. They're given the gift of time. Let's make something out of it. You, you said something really interesting in that friendships. I think most people, when they go into networking events, that's not a thought that they have friendships. I think people, when they go into networking events, one, um, their mother are, is in their head. And, and I say that because your mother always told you, never talk to strangers. Right. And that hampers people in networking because they view everybody in that room as a stranger versus as an opportunity. And that's, that's the way I've always approached it. But I like how you put it, developing friendships, because I think that really does drop that whole stranger uh, danger out of it. And even from a, it takes the business kind of maybe the cold side of business out of it and it becomes more embracing, more the ability to connect easier with it. Yeah. And I think obviously there, there's benefit to, you know, mutual gain through voluntary exchange that can happen when you meet somebody who might be in a role where you can help one another out. I think the less transactional it feels, the more authentic it will be. And, you know, uh, and then that transactional part in terms of where there's an exchange that occurs later or whatever might happen, I think that can happen naturally. I think if it's forced, it, 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 that the other person feels that. And then it's just like, oh, I'm just gathering names so I can put you in my Rolodex. And, you know, it shouldn't be like something that you're trying to 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 collect because, you know, I'm missing that Pokemon card. Let me get this person over here. It, it really, to me, should be about that authenticity piece where you're having a real exchange that that may or may not lead to something that's actual tan actually tangible, because then that part takes care of itself and feels less forced. Okay, so for my audience that might be in the millennial generation, a Rolodex preceded, uh, came before the Outlook. It was the thing we used to put our business cards in to keep them, uh, just so everybody is understands what, a, what maybe a Rolodex might be. I have 17 other antiquated references I'm hoping to, to weave in throughout the course of our time here this morning. Uh, are you going to say time and place, but you know, there we go. Are you going to say Dewey Decimal System? Sure. I know you want to. <laughs> 920 biography. <laughs> so I want to share a networking thing that happened between us um, back in, I believe it was about 2010. Because I knew of your advocacy work at the state level and at the federal level, the AICPA every other year goes to... Um, to Washington and lobbies uh, uh, Congress on on issues as it affects the accounting profession. And one of the gentlemen who was going up with us from the Ohio Society had a connection with Senator Sherrod Brown. And we were actually having breakfast in the Senate dining room uh, one of the days that we were up there with him. And there was about uh, six of us from the Ohio Society that were having breakfast with him. And before I went to Washington, I called you and I said, I need something, Jamie. I need something. I need a nugget. Give me something. And you gave me the best nugget ever. Do you remember what that was? I do. I think it had something to do with Senator Brown's uh, desk. 
Exactly. The Senate desk. And well, tell the, when you say the Senate desk, what do you what do you mean? Well, I, I happen to be aware that Senator Brown was at the time working on a book about his actual desk that he had been assigned in the Senate, the actual piece of furniture that was on the Senate floor, uh, not just because it was the Senate chamber, but because of who had had that desk before him. I know Robert Kennedy. Uh, Robert Kennedy was one of the individuals who had had that desk. And there's this whole line of incredible people who had also had that desk. And I knew it was something if he was writing a book about, he he surely must be fairly passionate about. So I was able to mention that to you and uh, ahead of your visit, I believe. Exactly. And you gave me a, a list of five names, but, but obviously uh, Kennedy was the biggest name. And he started talking about his book. And I made a comment that Senator Brown, don't you have the same desk as... Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, and his eyes got big. And then I rattled off the three other names. And he goes, how did you know that? And I just looked at him and said, I did my homework before I, I, I came. <laughs> he stopped the meeting. He says, you want to go see it? <laughs> and everybody just kind of looked around. Says, he gets up, says, come on, let's go. And our whole group gets up and we're walking. And next thing you know, we walk into the Senate chamber. And I'm sitting there going, what the heck is going on? Takes us <laughs> over to his desk, opens it up, shows us. Uh, and then Ted, Ted Kennedy was still alive at that point in time. We went over to Ted's desk and he had uh, um, uh, John F. Kennedy's old desk. And then he goes, he goes, hey, let's go look at some Republican desks. <laughs> let's go look at Mitch McConnell's desk. And, and then proceeded to give us this tour of the Senate chamber and behind the back of the Senate chamber to the Senate reading room. And we ended up coming back for our breakfast and had a great time. And I saw Senator Brown a couple years later. And uh, we were, he was coming in for uh, look for an endorsement for the Ohio Society of CPAs. And he saw me and he goes, do you remember? I said, of course. And I put up, <laughs> I don't remember him now because uh, <laughs> I just thought about it. But uh, uh, that was that was probably one of the coolest tips that I've ever gotten that that opened some really unique opportunities. And if you hadn't walked in that class with a Michigan State Jersey, this never would have happened. <laughs> That's true. That's true. See, there's a real call for bipartisanship embedded in all that. That's what the country needs. Exactly. But that's, I mean, it's amazing what you can do with networking if one, you, you just ask, and two, if you just do. But I, I think a lot of times it impedes us in, in what we're trying to accomplish or, or just that fear or I don't want to bother this person or, hey, you could have said, I, I got nothing and, and, and that would have been fine. But you did take the time and, and give me that. And I, I by the way, that the, the, the monthly check for that is in the mail again. <laughs> <laughs> hey, nothing like royalties to keep it, keep it, keep it going. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right, though. I think that there's always that risking of vulnerability. And I do think by reflex, so many of us are more inclined to say, you know, oh, I don't want to bother someone or or I'm just going to do this myself or not seeking that uh, larger circle of influence or that chance to connect to others who candidly might um, have something meaningful to share and do it willingly. And I think that's definitely a situation where one plus one equals three, where we're able to have the nourishment that comes with that. And People don't want to help. They're not going to. But I think more often than not, people are, are happy to and, and uh, want to see you be successful. I, I agree with that. I think I, I think people in your network, to your point, who you've developed a friendship with, and we'll use that friendship in a broad perspective versus a business transaction, 
are always willing to help in any which way, shape, or form, whether it's in a professional perspective or even in a personal perspective. They're always there willing to be able to help. Absolutely. I I absolutely believe there's a, a Beatles lyric embedded in this. Don't do not play this backwards on a, on a vinyl record. I know I'm bringing in more archaic references, but uh, on Abbey Road, you know, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. And I think there is like something where if you do things for the right reasons, um, do the right things for the right reasons, good things are bound to happen. And be genuine and be vulnerable and just be willing to help. Um, yeah. I, I think I think it was uh, a very long way. So we were talking about business. We were talking about the Craver world. And, and uh, if you could put on your economic bifocals. Now, let's take that back. Economic binoculars and, and, and look out into the, um, the, the future. We were sitting here today is October 26th. By the time this airs, we will have a new president in the White House. What do you see on the landscape? Well, you know, it's really interesting. That's a great question. Um, I might take a Hubble telescope to get uh, close enough to really be uh, uh, able to predict with much certainty. But I think that, you know, um, we have an incredibly resilient economy. Um, We definitely have seen more people in our neighborhoods in the past year and a half eating out more often. But I think um, when we look at what many of us in our space and retail and restaurants have been through the past eight years, there's always some hesitancy with good times because uh, candidly, it, it, there are some tough years in there where people weren't dining out as often, where um, you know it was a real scramble to make sure we're maintaining visits and, and providing the hospitality we know we're known for to be able to hold on to those visits. So I think economically speaking, we're going to head into a, a brand new administration, you know, a brand new year in 2017. And I think there's grounds for, for incredible hope. I mean, we live in the greatest age in the history of humankind with regard to technology and the possibility for productivity gains and and the, just the general notion of human progress. You know, where we live, sometimes uh, people in government, despite the best intentions, find ways to make that harder. And so, you know, what we're facing every day are things that increase our food costs. We're facing things that increase our cost to hire people and maintain the, the number of employees we have. So that's real world. At the same time, a nice counterbalance is this notion, the idea of progress and creativity and the fact that you really can't hold technology back. You can't hold the human spirit back. I mean, creativity is the great equalizer. So it'll be interesting to see what emerges from a policy point of view. And I think we're likely to see a lot of energy and effort on both sides around comprehensive tax reform. It needs to happen um, from a bipartisan point of view. There's acknowledgement that our, our tax system is broken, that we have the highest corporate tax rate in the free world. And there's a hunger for that. So I think that it, we might have a window <laughs> in the past of being an optimist, but we might have a window of hope where there's enough common ground that some good things might be accomplished. But, you know, we'll take it as it comes. God, this whole, the whole thing about tax reform, uh, that's going to take a lot of work. I and. Even as a CPA, I, I, you're right. The system is broken. There's got to be a better way. There, there, there has to. It's just way too complex. Uh, and but it's going to take a huge effort because there's been enough tax reform pieces done that are still sitting in the bowels of Congress, collecting dust that have never been acted on. Uh, and there's always been some. There's and some have been some really great ideas, but something bogs down that process. But you, were, I'm going to talk about the restaurant. I, 
I know you are, are been interviewed a number of times for Business First, the Columbus, uh, Ohio business periodical. But I just saw something recently uh, on the cover of of Business First about some of the struggles some of the restaurants are having here in the Columbus and, and the Ohio area. And 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 this, what are some of the causes of these struggles and how have you guys been able to um, avoid them? What, what restaurants represent, I think, is probably one of the more pure, and this is true of lots of uh, lots of entrepreneurs, but uh, we're really fortunate in being a real symbol of creativity and entrepreneurship. Um, you know, whether it's that family recipe that's been handed down for generations that, you know, if someone finally takes that leap of faith and decides, hey, I'm going to open a restaurant and serve, you know, this famous Greek chicken that's been <laughs> a part of my family heritage for generations or whatever it may be. What we see is bigger barriers to entry than there have been. And candidly, a lot of those barriers, whatever the good intentions are coming from regulators, whether that's at the federal level, whether that's the state or city level, whatever it may be. So when you have uh, an industry that typically runs on pretty compressed margins and the typical net income for restaurant tours, somewhere in that range of one to three percent in terms of what they're really able to capture at the end of the day. That puts a lot at risk if you crank up the cost of food, if you crank up the cost of investment in people. So, for instance, the new overtime rule that's set to go into effect on December 1st. Many in the restaurant world are hoping that the delay of the six month delay that the House of Representatives passed is also passed by the Senate and signed by the president during the lame dunk session because people need more time to absorb what that means for their cost. So um, that's just one small example. We hear a lot of talk around the state, uh, the city of Cleveland's going to have on the ballot in May of 2017, uh, something that would raise the minimum wage to $15 for starting pay. What we're in 100% in favor of high wages for our restaurant employees. We're against the idea of a government thinking they know what it's like to work behind the counter and telling us how to run our business because candidly, it's unworkable so many times. So so those are real world struggles that I think some face. And candidly, what's hard is we've been saying since 2008 with some of these new laws and regs and everything else, this is going to make it tougher for restaurants to stay in operation. We've gone from 418 restaurants in 2010 to 390 today. So the, the impacts are real. Um, but you struggle through it, you make it work, and you find a way to continue to be profitable. But it's not easy, and it's it's tough because sometimes those threats are more external than they are the result of your own decisions. Exactly. And when you say, you know, you, you, at the end of the day, you hope that you've got a profit margin of somewhere between 1% and 3%. I like to put it in a different way, maybe that to get some who may not be as financially astute to, to get their mind around it. So for every dollar that your customers give you, out of that dollar, you're able to keep a penny to three cents of it. Right. Off of every transaction. So your payroll costs, your your, your, your food costs, everything else is eating up so much of that dollar that at the end of the day, you only, I get a, I get a penny. Well, if it's a good day, I get three cents. Now multiply that by the number of transactions that go on. But yeah, it's, I mean, those are really tight margins. And if you sneeze the wrong way, you're in the negative. You're in the loss position. That's true. And I think, uh, you know, and we we understand that we come into this eyes wide open. We've been in the restaurant business for 95 years now, but uh, we, we do think it's important that policymakers especially understand that, hey, you know, this th- there are unintended consequences to an idea you think is a good idea. And on the surface, it might appear to be that way. But did you know the rest of the story? And, and we think it's our 
our responsibility from the uh, focus on being good citizens to let them know uh, what the real world looks like. Yeah, that's great. And, and, you know, I imagine that it falls on some deaf ears uh, because not everybody in any legislature uh, may not be as, as fiscally um, conservative or fiscally knowledgeable that they think they're doing something good, which could ultimately could put you out of business. And then, I mean, how many how many associates do you employ? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'd love thank you for asking me that, because you asked what's allowed us to continue to be successful over all these years. And really, truly, the, the secret for our success is an incredible team member. So we employ 10,000 people around the country, uh, 10,000 people in 12 states. And of those 10,000 people, this is uh, hard to believe in fast food, but more than one in four of those 10,000 team members have been with White Castle 10 years or more. So there's incredible loyalty. Uh, the other thing that I think really stands out about our business model, of our top 450 restaurant leaders, of the top 450 people in restaurant operations management, 444 started behind the counter in an hourly job, many of them when they were 15. You know, we love the six who didn't. <laughs> but you know, uh, it, it's awesome that we've got this incredible loyalty and this promote from within opportunity that we've created to provide people a path to prosperity, a chance to allow their dreams to come true. So uh, for us, that's a sacred trust. It is really the heart of hospitality that motivates us every day. It comes from each of those individuals who make it possible. So if I said that you, White Castle, really embraces the fact that they're in the people business, first and foremost, everything else comes second, that would be a valid statement. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the people business and how we do that is by a real, I mean, you know, it's not just a vision statement. We put on a piece of paper and throw in a folder somewhere, uh, you know, to nourish the souls of Craver generations everywhere is what motivates us. It's what guides us. It's what helps us make our decision. And then the secondary part of that, our mission is to make memorable moments every day. And so that gives us the chance to not just give someone a sack of 10. That's pretty <laughs> memorable. I uh, love that. But it's also about, you know, what goes with it. You know, it's the smile. It's that connection point, And it's being there for people when they need us the most. So we're that oasis, man. We're on the highway of hope and life. Exactly. And I know you guys do a lot here in the community. Uh, I, we've met a couple of times up at the Kinney Road location and what, what was going on that one day? All of a sudden, was it a, was it a run or there was some volunteering effort that you were, were working on? And next thing you know, the restaurant's full with all these volunteers. You guys are going out to, and I'm, I'm, I'm blanking. Right <laughs> no, you know, we, we have so many, uh, really nourishing partnerships with so many great groups around town. I think that day we might've had our friends in the American Red Cross coming in to do a check presentation uh, for dollars that we had, we were giving them a check for dollars we had raised around the castles where customers donated to turn White Castle red before Valentine's Day. Uh, and we're, we're, we have a great friendship with the American Red Cross. Uh, we work really closely with Autism Speaks is another group we work with in town. And, and our, our hope is to feed hunger, hopes, and dreams. Really look at how we can empower the human spirit um, so people have the best path forward. And so um, we do give back quite a bit to community, um, not to pat ourselves on the back, but because we think it's really important to put our money where our mouth is and to really help those individuals in the neighborhoods where we are every day. And, and, and since we've met back way back, you were wearing that green jersey or something. I don't remember. Yeah, like simpler then. Yeah. But in talking to you and, and your brother-in-law, John, um, who is the 
is he senior vice president of people? What's his title? He is our chief people officer. That's right. He has the conductor stick when it comes to uh, empowering all of our people. He does an awesome job. Yeah, uh, and that's that's John Kelly the third, or you would call him. Johnny Three Sticks. Johnny Three Sticks. Yeah. Took, it took me about a year till I figured. You're not recording, that. right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, having gotten to know you, and actually, John was in, in the class as well with, with Jamie. Jamie, but having to get to know these guys over the years, I, I've seen White Castle in, in a completely different perspective of the community, of how they treat their people, their their their, their team members, of of how socially conscious and, and i use that in a very broad sense that the organization is, is. and it, it's you know you, you're 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 a family business so we can't see the numbers behind the, the but you, you've been around for 95 years that says a lot you, you're 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 the company's well respected well known um and even to the point that i, I remember we were having uh it was during the the uh NCAA tournament, you, me, and our good friend, Dr. Jay Young, who will be on a future podcast. And John were at a local restaurant and they were, one of their specials was sliders. <laughs> and I went, wait a minute, guys, don't, you've got that trademarked. And you went, yeah, we have a trademark. And you said early on, you may have probably challenged a few, but after a while you went, why? So we're just throwing money down down a down a, a very deep hole. And actually, when you say the word slider, we all know what we think of White Castle. So it's like subliminal advertising. You've got other restaurants advertising for you. How do you do that, my friend? Hey, you just revealed our secret plan to win the war. <laughs> oh, we'll cut this out then. No, that's all right. That's all right. We'll leave it in. So uh, sharing is caring. You know, we're open source before it was popular. Uh, I think for us, it is about, uh, you know, um, being comfortable with who we are. Uh, you know, the brand itself has meant so much to so many people. But we're also, as our CEO said to the first group that was inducted into the Hall of Fame, do you realize that your love of White Castle has led to the scorn, ridicule, and derision of others because they simply can't understand your deep and unending devotion? And, you know, at that point, Michelle Purcell, who was an inductee that year, started to cry, um, you know, uh, and then he shared, you know, that uh, do you realize this year more people won Super Bowl rings, more people won Nobel Prizes. You are a very elite group of people and that, uh, you know, you might be made fun of by others, but in our hearts and hallways, your names will always be held as sacred. And that's when Michelle Purcell, who was weeping, uh uh, gently raised her pant leg to reveal a White Castle ankle tattoo. Oh, nice. Yeah, tattoos, by the way, since we're sharing all the other secrets, I might as well share this one too. A White Castle tattoo is a guaranteed shortcut to get you into a White Castle permanent tattoo is a guaranteed shortcut to get you into the White Castle Cravers Hall of Fame. Oh, my wife's not going to like you at all. <laughs> no, but you know what? You will be famous for the ages. Your name will live on. And just having the White Castle candle doesn't help at all? White Castle candle, uh, for those who are unaware, you have to experience this. It is aromatherapy for the modern age. Uh, our good friend Laura Slatkin, who is known as the queen of home fragrances, she is designed for Elton John, Vera Wang, Martha Stewart, the British royal family, and White Castle, created the original White Castle hamburger scented candle, which is, has a base of bun, uh -huh. Uh -huh. A great amount of beef, 
the perfect blend of onion and a top note of pickle. And uh, it's available on the House of Crave. On the House of Crave. Yes, I, I actually, I, have, I may have to get another one because I think mine has been completely used up. That is a, <laughs> you're on your path to the Hall of Fame. You keep doing things like that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I, I do, I do love your guys' business. It's great. I, I love it when I've been able to come and visit. And, and I, I before we, 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 we have to talk about, because you guys said you're comfortable in your own skin. What was that movie that came out a while ago? Uh, <laughs> can you help me here, Jamie? I'm drawing a blank. Well, we're still a little bit upset it didn't win the 2004 Academy Award for Best Picture. But uh, the film I think uh, you're referencing, Pete, is Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle. Bingo. Yep. (laughs) And what role did you play in that? I was fortunate enough to answer the phone call uh, when one of the uh, entertainment clearance uh, individuals from LA was calling and uh, she was telling me about this great film about these two likable underdogs who spend a night of misadventure as she called it searching for a white castle and I honestly I truly believed it was an April Fool's prank or one of those deals <laughs> where they get y'all excited and then they tell you oh by the way for a small fee of $350,000 you can have your name in this so they sent us the script and turns out it was real and uh it also turned out it was rated R for or somewhat raunchy <laughs> because uh, the language is a little rough and she failed to mention that they actually, uh, the cannabis sativa uh, was involved in their, their hunger pangs and that, uh, that uh, after smoking some weed, they went out in search of white castle. But uh, we were fortunate enough to uh, be able to participate. I remember uh, some trepidation in asking our CEO about it to make sure he was okay with it. And uh, Bill Ingram, who just retired as our CEO last year, God love him. He's the best. He was a chair, he's still chairman of the board. But when I went in to chat with Bill about it, I thought I better be straight ahead. So I told him it's rated R for raunchy, has sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Other than that, it's a love letter to White Castle. And he got really quiet. I thought, oh boy. <laughs> uh, and then he he looked and he paused and he said, Does it make fun of our he asked, does it make fun of our team members? And when I said, No, it's actually very complimentary. He looked and said, I'm okay with it then. And that was it. That was the lengthy approval process uh, that allowed us to participate. Did you get to go out to L.A. at all? Uh, You know, Kate and I and uh, my brother-in-law, John, and my sister-in-law, Meg, had the opportunity to go to the premiere. And uh, it was a blast out in L.A. And uh, I'll tell you, that was fun, but nothing was more fun than the day the movie launched and we encountered something we hadn't encountered since 1921. We literally almost ran out of hamburger in the restaurants. Uh, The sales spike was so strong uh, and so incredible. It was unprecedented. And uh, the only time that happened again was uh, when the DVD came out uh, the following winter. So uh, it was uh, historic in terms of uh, it was it hit some highs in many ways, metaphorically. (laughs) Uh, There were some historic highs that resulted from a sales point of view as well. And so and our thought was that um, the nature of the film was good natured, that it wasn't mean spirited at all. Right. And that uh, it connected to a whole new generation of cravers. We might not otherwise had the chance to meet like we did, so it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I, I can't believe it was back in 2004. Me neither. Uh, we maintain a nice friendship with John Cho and Cal Penn. Uh, they're great guys. They went on to have gone on to do great things in their careers, and and uh, actually that resurrected the career of a gentleman by the name of Neil Patrick Harris, who appeared in the film. And uh, when we had the opportunity to meet him a, a few years later, he thanked us profusely because in that film. He says he was able to kill the ghost of Doogie Hauser. So, uh, uh, and if you haven't seen the film, you'll understand when you see some of the scenes. I won't uh, 
get into the, uh, the, the the granular details at this point. Oh, I have to go back and watch it because I forgot that he was even in that movie. Yeah, he's in the film playing himself. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's it's out there. It's good. Uh, and, and isn't one of the characters, one of the two guys, didn't he, isn't he in, in, in Washington? Isn't he in, in, in something has to do with, with, with government and Congress or or something? Cal Penn actually went on to... He continues to have a very successful acting career, has actually taught film at USC. He's been, um, you know, everything from Merchant and Ivory films. So he's currently starring in a new TV show that I think is going to be on CBS. He also took time off from acting and worked in the Obama administration, worked in the White House and and was part of the cultural office. He is uh, his heritage is that he's uh, Indian. And so he, he worked in the cultural affairs for Pacific affairs and Asian affairs and Really a great guy, super smart, uh, well-informed, uh, and just a good friend. Nice, nice person. That, that, that's really cool. Um, I, yeah, I'm going to, well, so after this interview's over, uh, I've got to go get a sack uh, of, of sliders, and then maybe I'll just take the rest of the afternoon off and, and watch, the, watch the movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do, do a critique, man. Be a film critic. The critics are craving. The critics are craving. Uh, so as we wrap up, I know you you love to read and you read a lot of interesting books. What's what book are you reading today? Or which what's out there? Uh, I am reading a historical fiction book called "The Last Days of Night," and it's actually about the legal battle that happened in the 1880s between George Westinghouse and Thomas Edison through the eyes of this young attorney who's been hired to uh, represent uh, Westinghouse. And it's a really interesting perspective because I know. We appropriately uh, uh, really, uh, you know, have a lot of reverence for for Thomas Edison. This book is not so flattering. So it's a whole uh, whole new picture of of Thomas Edison I hadn't expected. Um, so it's pretty interesting, pretty intriguing as we go. Wow. So what is your favorite book? What, that if if someone said you could pick up another book and read it again, what what's your go to? You know, um, there's a. Uh, uh, an Irish author who I think is just brilliant. His name's Colin McCann. Uh, he lives in New York City. He's from Ireland. He has written a number of incredible works because they have the the poetical sense of a Dylan Thomas, but he's able to weave a tale and just do it so vividly that it really stays with you. And of all of his books, they're just all fantastic. My favorite is one called Let the Great World Spin. And again, it takes real world events that happen. It recreates the scene when a uh, high wire artist actually walked between the World Trade Centers back in like 1974. And uh, but Let the Great World Spin, I think, is just an incredible read. And I'd recommend it to anybody if they're looking for something good. Cool. I, I will. I will definitely pick that up. Oh, I'm sorry. Who's that? Oh, there's someone here who wants to, to, to say something to you. Hold on, <laughs> hold, hold on one second. Uh, uh, President. Jamie, I just want to tell you, you're a fine, fine American. I appreciate all the hard work you've been doing up in, up in, up in Washington, and and j- please just keep up that good work. You're you're a wonderful American. Thank you, Mr. President. I am a very uh, honored to uh, have the chance to say hello. I did. I, he just appeared. I mean, I, I don't know how he got into my basement. Uh, he may have knocked on the door, and, and my wife let, let him. Uh oh, <laughs> let him in. Uh, but um, <laughs> uh, he, he just wanted to come in and say hello. He, he uh, and, and he does believe that. I mean, I, I, on behalf of of former President 
Clinton. You're you're a really cool guy. I'm, I'm I I I I love our conversations that we have. My only complaint is uh, we only do this on a quarterly basis because both of our schedules are. Uh, extremely busy, but I look forward to those times, whether it's breakfast or, as we say, getting the band back. And apparently we're getting the band back uh, the the Monday before the election. Me, you, John, and uh, Jay Young to talk a little uh, uh, political season, a little politics, which is always good, and maybe share a little bit of that Kentucky brown water. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. Yeah. So, one, thank you again. Thank you again, Jamie, for taking time out. I've really enjoyed this. I hope you have, too. It's been very informative, and I, I know my audience will uh, enjoy this as well. So thank you so very much. Pete, yes, and crave on, my friend. <laughs> Thanks. I hope you enjoyed our conversation on networking and can take some of the tips and techniques and apply them in your next networking opportunity. As you heard, the principles of improvisation will make you a better networker. Listening is a key component in networking. Remember when Jamie said, if you are really listening to the person and not thinking about what you're going to say next, you hear things that you are able to remember and the next time you see that person, you can follow up on that conversation. That is the key point in this interview because in improv, we discuss this all the time, the power of listening. In my workshops, when I want to demonstrate this concept, we play a game called Last Word Spoken. You pair up with someone and start a conversation. When the person stops talking, the other person must start their sentence with the last word you spoke. The goal is to have a conversation that flows well and makes sense. For example, I might start a conversation and say, accountants are a lot of fun. And then you would say, fun and accounting are not an oxymoron. Then I would say, oxymoron, that reminds me of jumbo shrimp. Try this game at your next staff meeting. It really helps to drive the improv principle of listening to understand with your team. Now, this was a fun, thought-provoking interview, and I hope you enjoyed it. If so, I would greatly appreciate it if you would write a review on iTunes. I am positive that Jamie would appreciate it as well. Now, in episode 29, I interviewed Dr. Jay Young, who is the founder of College Bound Advantage. If you have a child that is a sophomore in an Ohio high school, you do not want to miss this episode. Until next time, use the principles of improvisation to help you connect and grow your professional network. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.